Hello everyone, this is Maz. If you're hearing this message, it means you're not part of the Voices of War subscriber community and will only hear the first half of the episode. If that's enough, then I'm thrilled. However, if you're looking to dive deeper into the complexities of war, please consider subscribing to our private feed by using the link at the top of the show notes. By doing so, you'll gain access to all of our episodes, the ability to ask follow-up questions, and we'll become part of an exclusive community that makes this show possible. I hope you'll make the decision to join us today. Can the United States re-engineer Iraq? Any competent person advising the US president on that question could only have come to the conclusion that this was not going to work. In the Middle East, the past is not history, it's practically contemporary. People's sense of what is important is very much shaped by collective historical memory. What we are noticing is a decline in the level of sympathy for Israel, particularly among the Democrats in the United States, that mirrors the rise in the United States of movements like Black Lives Matter. If there's one thing that I have realized over 50 years of working in the region, is that if you turn your back on the Middle East long enough, it will surely bite you on the bum. My guest today is Dr. Robert Bob Bowker, whose career in the politics and analysis of the Middle East spans five decades. He spent 37 years as an Australian diplomat in the region, firstly on postings to Saudi Arabia and Syria, and later as the Australian ambassador to Jordan, Egypt, as well as non-resident ambassador to Syria, Libya, Tunisia, and Sudan. Bob also held senior roles at the United Nations Relief and Works Program for Palestine refugees in the Near East, based in Gaza and Jerusalem. Following his diplomatic career, Bob spent more than a decade as an academic, firstly as an adjunct professor, and later as an honorary fellow at the ANU Center for Arab and Islamic Studies. For a period of that time, Bob also served as an intelligence analyst with the Office of National Assessments. Bob recently published a memoir about his extensive career and personal attachment to the Middle East titled Tomorrow There Will Be Apricots, An Australian Diplomat in the Arab World. Bob joins me today to discuss his book, as well as his views on the state of the Middle East, its predominant and enduring fault lines, as well as the role of the West in the region. Bob, thank you very much for joining me on The Voices of War. Uh, it's my pleasure. That's uh, quite, a, quite a background you've got. Uh, I can't uh, quite remember that I've spoken to uh, an ambassador with such a portfolio uh, in the past, uh, such a diverse and broad portfolio. Uh, so firstly, congratulations on such an amazing uh, and extensive career. Well, thank you. Uh, at times, I think the department decided I wasn't much use for anything else, so they just kept sending me back. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure they knew what they were doing. I have no doubt. Given well, given uh, certainly given the countries you were looking after and the uh, and the interesting colours uh, and dynamics of that region, uh, I suspect uh, they knew what they were doing. Uh, but perhaps before we get to the region proper, uh, maybe we can start by finding out what motivated you initially. Uh, to enter into the world of international relations? Well, it wasn't a, a very clear-cut 
decision. I'd uh, spent some time in Indonesia when I was a student and uh, in far-flung bits of Indonesia, including delivering fuel oil around Sumatra on a small boat. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I uh, came to encounter Islam for the first time uh, with, a, with the Bougainese uh, crew members on, on the boat. And uh, I was deeply interested in uh, Islam as a religion. I'm, I'm not a spiritual person mm-hmm. myself, but uh, the the attractions of coming to understand a different culture and the elements that contributed to that culture, uh, I guess, started me off on a path which eventually led me into the Arab world. I, uh, when I was at university, I had studied Indonesian and Malay and Malay mm. in Arabic script, which was a nice introduction into Arabic later on. Mm. And as I say, it was really an exposure to a different set of ideas and people and circumstances that attracted my interest for the first time. Yeah, amazing. Uh, Anda bicara bahasa, of course. Only Latin sekarang tidak boleh dilancar. Yeah, juga. I did uh, study for some years and I did use it uh, extensively while in Timor, but certainly uh, wouldn't be able to hold the conversation uh, at the moment. Right. But uh, I suspect that uh, broadened your profile or your horizons uh, I guess at a rather early age and and something that I want to touch on uh, later on. But uh, I'm just interested, interested what, why the long-standing interests uh, or why the interest in Islam? What was it about Islam that, uh, that kind of drew you towards it, especially since you're not a spiritual person? Well, I think it was the sense of uh, communal solidarity that it encourages, uh, uh, the elements of uh, mercy and forgiveness that are very much mm. uh, at the heart of, of uh, Islamic teaching. Uh, and uh, uh, there's an element of history there as well. Uh, uh, it's a cultural phenomenon of which uh, Arabs are very proud, and uh, Muslims generally are very proud as a as a mm. an uh, identifier of of who they are. Uh, mm. Lots of things that uh, are uh, not part of a Western culture uh, shine mm. through, mm. and uh, there's a great deal to admire in in all of that. Yeah. And also not uh, not what's usually heard in the West about Islam, certainly not over the last 20, 25 years as well. So uh, I think it's, an, again, another interesting insight. Yeah, the, the distortion of, mm. of Islam uh, as a result of the behaviour of individuals pursuing political objectives uh, has mm. been very tragic, I think, uh, mm. uh, whereas there was a long history of uh, positive interaction between uh, Islam and the West uh, uh, a, a far longer history of engagement in commerce and culture and uh, uh, than there is a history of conflict mm. uh, has largely been set aside in Western memories mm. uh, because of uh, activities on both sides, uh, people mm. who've sought to exploit uh, those instances where conflict has occurred mm. uh, and present that as some sort of enduring phenomenon, which... Yeah historically is quite inaccurate uh, yeah. um, and certainly should be dispelled at every opportunity. Yeah, yeah, well, I, yeah. I mean, much larger periods of time where trade was the norm uh, as opposed to a war and conflict. And I think, uh, well, if I'm right, the Prophet Muhammad was a trader himself, so I think uh, that also set the tone uh, for, uh, for, for Islam uh, going forward. Well, it um, opens up actually some interesting uh, theological and political debates within the Muslim world. 
as to what the approach should be to the welfare of the community at large. Uh, is it uh, desirable to support the community through welfare or mm. should it be through economic uh, activity and mm. uh, opportunities for advancement uh, uh, that, uh, that commerce provides? And there's never really been a satisfactory answer to that question, uh, but it, it, it played out in the contemporary era, particularly in the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, uh, when it came to power briefly in, in 2013. Mm. Uh, the, uh, there are all sorts of angles to Islam that uh, are worth discussing, and I always found it very interesting to talk to people about how they perceived their responsibilities as, as Muslims uh, toward their broader community. That's interesting. And as in, are you saying as to how the society should be, should be structured? So the, in, in kind of broader terms, uh, so to, use, to take the example of the Brotherhood, uh, are you saying that they were more focused on trade or on the, the kind of uh, social welfare uh, side of things? What I found interesting was that they couldn't make up their minds one way or the other. <laughs> right, right, right. right. And, so that's uh, the tension. There, yeah. there was factional uh, dispute uh, within the Brotherhood on that very question. Mm, okay, that's interesting. Mm. Okay, let's uh, let's maybe dive into the book a little bit. F- firstly, who did you write this book for, uh, and what are you hoping to achieve with it? I actually, to be honest, wrote it initially for the family uh, mm. um, to try to explain to future generations of, of Bowkers uh, uh, why their grandfather, great grandfather, uh, did what he did, uh, uh, and uh, to put on record for them uh, what my views were on the big issues uh, Mm. of the Middle East. But uh, as I began by writing about the issues rather than me, I I realised that I needed to try to explain how I came to my views, what experiences had shaped those views, what Mm. people I encountered and so on that led me to my appreciation of uh, the nature of the Middle East and the Arab world. Um, and so the book became effectively two books in one. Uh, mm. uh, I put an awful lot of effort into the issues side of it, mm. uh, but I wound up uh, spending a, a lot of time, probably half uh, of the book in total, um, talking about those uh, events uh, which had led me uh, to uh, form those views as a Middle East war horse heading out to mm. pasture. Mm. And that, and that's an aspect of the book I thoroughly enjoyed because it it did give us the macro level analysis, really useful insights into the region that one earns, I guess, by decades of living and breathing the region. Uh, but uh, throughout the entire book, in fact, I think as you said, it's two books. Uh, there's the personal anecdotes, personal stories, the people you met, the connections you made. Uh, and also the ethical challenges uh, that you encountered, uh, which is definitely one aspect I want to get to. Uh, but what does the title mean? Because the title uh, is not necessarily self-explanatory uh, as much as it jumps out at you. Um, uh, I mean, you do describe it in, you know, within the first, or well, I think in a kind of before you start, you have a description as to what it means. But uh, perhaps for the audience, what does, it, what does tomorrow there will be apricots mean? Well, there's an expression in Arabic, Bukra fil Mishmish, uh, which means literally, uh, tomorrow there will be apricots. Uh, mm. But it's an expression that is used uh, among Arabs who 
don't want to flatly disagree uh, with some preposterous statement that's been made, uh, mm. uh, and you don't want to say, "Well, if if God wills," uh, that mm. which is the which is the which is the one everyone knows, right? <laughs> Inshallah. Uh, Inshallah. But, yeah. But uh, in it's a polite. Uh, good-humoured way of saying, well, frankly, you know, my friend, uh, pigs might fly before mm. uh, that happens. Uh, um, and it's an expression which, when a foreigner uses it, uh, often elicits a howls of laughter from uh, from his audience. Uh, we're not supposed to know uh, exactly uh, what that means. Um, <laughs> You're uh, an insider. <laughs> that's right. It's a bit worrying, of course, uh, mm. when you confront an insider who's not an insider. Uh. Um but uh, yes, it's it's something which I think uh, expresses the uh, the warmth and the humour uh, that underpins uh, Arab societies uh, uh, writ large, and uh, it's that that aspect of the Arab world uh, that I wanted to capture in the book because. That is the Arab world that I understand best. Mm. Uh, it's uh, it's a world that is complex, that is focused very much on personal relations, uh, that emphasises respect and treatment of others with dignity, and uh, has a certain degree of uh, casual, uh, uh, I wouldn't say contempt, but certainly a casual suspicion of mm. authority and, and pretension. Mm. Uh, and uh, it's a, an expression that, that uh, I think many Australians uh, can relate to uh, very well. Mm-hmm. So, so how does that gel with, well, well I guess as, as you just made the point about Australians uh, uh, would understand, but how does it gel broadly uh, to the West or certainly the Western audiences present in the Middle East? Well, how does it contrast, maybe? Maybe that's a better better way to, to phrase the question. I think uh, when most ordinary people in the Arab world hear expressions of uh, uh, political uh, of a political nature from leaders, uh, be they in the West or in the Arab world, mm. about mm. how great the future is going to be or how their uh, their approach to the region is uh, so attuned to the region's needs and so on, mm, mm. Uh, there is a healthy scepticism mm, mm. that uh, comes back in response because mm. uh, the historical evidence uh, is very much uh, uh, toward uh, a, uh, a relationship based on inequality and at times uh, exploitation uh, of uh, Arab interests by outsiders and by their proxies in the region. Mm. And uh, so that sense that perhaps uh, such expressions of intent should not be taken too seriously uh, mm. uh, is the sort of thinking that lies behind uh, the use of the, the phrase book of Which is, uh, again, a wonderful cultural insight and, uh, yeah, one that... Um I suspect most people wouldn't be familiar with because they wouldn't have spent as much time in the region as you have. It is definitely an aspect that you talk about quite a lot in the book. Uh, you talk about cultural exchanges, whether as a recipient, uh, being kind of uh, uh, introduced to certain aspects of, of particular culture, uh, as well as sharing aspects of Australian culture. 
why did you personally feel that this was important for your job? And then perhaps more strategically, why does it matter? Hmm. Well, obviously for an Australian uh, diplomat, it's important to present uh, the the values and the identity of Australia to a wider audience uh, in the hope that we will generate understanding of, of who we are and hopefully a sympathetic understanding mm. uh, when we present ourselves and our ideas and our views and our questions uh, to others. So it is important to be able to connect at a cultural level with any society in which, in which we're operating. Mm. Uh, but professionally, beyond that, I always found that cultural engagement uh, with uh, Egypt or Syria or Jordan and so on provided opportunities, firstly, to get a, a much more rounded understanding of the society in which uh, I was expected to achieve results uh, in terms of Australian interests. Mm. And there are opportunities when you're operating among people who are involved in cultural pursuits uh, to gain a, a, this rounded perspective of the society in which uh, they operate and how we might best interact with it. It also provides opportunities to understand power structures uh, mm. in those societies, uh, uh, the sensitivities uh, that apply uh, at the popular level on the one hand and, mm. and um, at a more socio-economically advanced level on the other hand. If you do something like, as we did, uh, we had a particular interest in what they call czar music, uh, Z-A-R, czar music mm. in Egypt. It's a, uh, it's a very traditional form of music and song uh which has uh, deep historical connections uh, uh, down the Nile uh, Valley mm -hmm. into, uh, into parts of Africa. And uh, it is very much a spiritualistic, uh, strongly Sufist uh, tradition. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, when you talk to Egyptians about this, uh, and especially Egyptians at a, at a higher socioeconomic level, there is a, a degree of embarrassment uh, mm. that this phenomenon should even exist. Uh, it's, it's viewed with deep scepticism in terms of Islam. Uh, it's, uh, it's Sufist elements uh, seem to have some connection to the Shia tradition, which is, of course, mm. Mm. suspect from a, from a Sunnah point of view. Um, mm. And yet it endures uh, at the popular level uh, with considerable force. So when you become involved in, in watching this sort of these sorts of performances and then mm. talking to Egyptians about them, you get all sorts of interesting insights into what makes Egyptians tick mm. at, a, at a personal level. That um, certainly expands uh, your uh, your capacity to understand the dynamics of what's going on around you. What would be some of those standout cultural exchanges that you remember? I think the ones that really uh, worked uh, to greatest effect uh, were two things, really. Uh, we had a 
uh, an opportunity through my wife's engagement uh, with the tent makers of Cairo mm. uh, to see how a micro community uh, in Cairo, uh, these men who've been operating since uh, probably the uh, Mamluk period mm. and making tents and decorating their, their those tents from the inside uh, with embroideries, preserved a tradition of artisanship uh, and, uh, and yet uh, adapted to commercial realities over mm. the centuries in ways which uh, remain very distinctively Egyptian, but which uh, were a reinforcement of a community that uh, was uh, constantly under pressure from larger commercial forces, modernizations, and so on, and was struggling to secure its its future. That sort of combination of cultural identity and commercial reality mm-hmm. uh, uh, was a, a constant tension in their in their daily existence, and it was rewarding from my point of view to see how with the assistance of my wife Jenny mm. uh, the community managed to uh, establish itself in a broader international uh, market uh, with the uh, with accessing uh, particularly in the United States the quilt maker communities mm-hmm. who could recognize the quality of the work that was being done mm. and and respond to that by placing uh, that industry on a more viable commercial, sustainable commercial basis. Mm. So that was one part of uh, uh, my Mm. memories of Mm. of cultural Mm. engagement. But the other was the holding of uh, an Australian film festival in Cairo, Mm. just Mm. uh, as uh, I was winding up there as ambassador. And we... Uh, chose to run a uh, collection of old uh, 1970s style Australian mm. movies because I like them. Mm, um, mm, mm. But also because uh, at that period of Australian cinema, mm-hmm. we had a range of uh, movies that were colourful, that were entertaining, that were sometimes lighthearted and generally uh, uh, attuned to the sort of interests of uh, much of uh, the the audience that was going to be invited to attend. Mm. And I was struck by the reaction to uh, the showing of rabbit-proof fence Mm. Mm. because the Egyptians who who watched that movie responded to it in ways which were uh, quite uh, distinctively Egyptian. They saw these young indigenous women uh, who were running away from uh, the European, white Australian Mm. uh, domination, institutional domination and so Mm. on. And they empathised with them as people who, like themselves, had a story to tell but were not being heard Mm. uh, and were determined to do whatever was required uh, to uh, address that uh, through their own efforts, 
and to maintain their sense of dignity and, and self-respect in doing mm. so. And that Egyptian reaction was so, uh, so uh, revealing in what it said uh, about how Egyptians view themselves vis-a-vis the rest of the world. Mm. Mm. Um, mm. That I, I found that, uh, and, and the sympathy that uh, the movie generated, of course, uh, uh, was something which is very positive uh, mm. from an Australian perspective. The fact that, firstly, you had Indigenous people uh, behaving in that way, and secondly, that you had Australian film producers uh, willing to make a movie along those lines. Mm. Uh, that said something powerful about the values that Australians stood for. Mm. And were the Egyptians wrong? for connecting to that or, or seeing themselves in those stories? No, I thought they uh, uh, they actually perceived a, a connection that was entirely mm. appropriate uh, uh, given their own backgrounds. I mean, anyone whose family had been in Alexandria when it had been shelled by a British gunboat in 1882 uh, mm. uh, for failing to... Uh, uh, make repayments on the on the debt mm. they'd incurred uh, for building the Suez Canal for the British and the French. Mm. Um, I think would empathise entirely with the uh, with the attitudes that uh, that the movie was actually depicting. And how much does that history, that sort of history, echo through the Middle East? Is that Absolutely. something that people remember and and discuss and refer to? Absolutely. Um, in the Middle East, the past is, is not history. It, it's practically contemporary. Uh, people's mm, mm. sense of uh, what is uh, important is very much shaped by collective historical memory, real or imagined. It doesn't mm, have to mm. be accurate mm. um, in, in an empirical sense. Uh, if it is the collective view of uh, a society that is constantly reinforced uh, by uh, daily lived experience, mm. then it is powerful. Mm. And that is uh, very much what shapes uh, Arab uh, perceptions of uh, relationships with uh, the external world, uh, uh, including, of course, uh, the United States and other Western countries. Mm. But uh, that sense of how you connect the present to the past is is fundamental to the identity of mm. uh, of almost every Arab society that I've ever worked in. Mm. That's so interesting. How, to what extent do you think that is understood by the West broadly construed, right? So, so whatever Western parties are active in the Middle East, to what extent do you think they understand these cultural nuances? Oh, I don't think there's much appreciation at the political level uh, uh, between... Why, why is that? Why? why? I mean, given, well, given that you've... I mean, you, you're in politics, you were in politics, and you've, you've um, I guess, adopted these views. Why is this something that remains distant elsewhere? Well, you begin with the fact that uh, uh, ministers are busy people, uh, mm. that they have other uh, considerations uh, to take into account. They don't... Uh, necessarily have the level of personal interest in uh, the politics, society, culture mm. uh, of 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 the Arab world that uh, people who have spent five decades working in it mm. Uh, mm. might have. Um, there's a tendency, I think, to 
regard the Middle East as being too complicated, uh, mm. certainly as uh, a uh, political minefield for any mm. uh, any uh, political leader who chooses to engage in it. Uh, there's precious few rewards for getting involved mm. in the Middle East as a as a politician or as a as a minister. Um, Interesting, but beyond that, and and not unreasonably, uh, ministers do need to focus on issues that are uh, more directly uh, uh, important to ordinary Australians, uh, and foreign policy, of course. Uh, uh, rarely has an impact upon electoral considerations, mm, mm, uh, mm. let alone uh, the uh, ins and outs of uh, of particular conflicts and uh, issues that uh, those of us who work on the region, of course, regard as as being uh, uh, of, of considerable importance. Mm, mm. I think you made that very clear, uh, especially with the invasion of Iraq. Uh, so maybe my question to you then is uh, to get to that juicy topic. Um, how much did this, mis- this misunderstanding or perhaps lack of intimate understanding and willingness to understand the Middle East uh, contribute to the decision to invade Iraq in 2003? Well, I think we need to look at it uh, in terms of firstly uh, the attitudes that were prevailing at that time in the United mm-hmm. States mm-hmm. Um, and then separately the issues in the Australian context. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I found uh, unfortunate in uh, in the United States, uh, in the case of the United States, uh, was the absence of any strategic analysis about the uh, not the capacity of the United States to win a military victory in Iraq, mm. but rather the fundamental question of whether a, a military action against the regime of Saddam Hussein would produce a more durable and satisfactory outcome mm. than a result achieved or a result sought through political and, and diplomatic means. And to answer that question, one really needed to look at what the post-conflict scenario mm. in Iraq uh, would look like. Mm. Uh, it needed a careful analysis of the, uh, the political, uh, the, uh, the, the regional security element, um, the, the nature of Iraqi society and its connections uh, uh, beyond Iraq's borders, particularly obviously to Iran. Mm. Um, but it also needed a preparedness to stand back and say, can the United States re-engineer Iraq uh, through the removal of a particular regime and achieve through that an outcome which would actually advance American interests. And any competent person advising the uh, US president on that question could only have come to the conclusion that this was not going to work. 
when I look at the commentary uh, of people like Fouad Adjami or Tom Friedman, mm. who talked so blithely about reworking the mm. Middle East into some different shape because of uh, the uh, removal of the Saddam regime, I can only comprehend uh, how they could have come to those views, leaving aside base political motives and so on, which probably applied in some cases, but mm. by no means all. I, they can only come to those views in the context of the trauma of 9-11 uh, and the uh, the responses that that galvanised uh, within American society that ultimately led to such, frankly, harebrained notions uh, gaining traction. And in the Australian context, I think it is extraordinarily sad that we found ourselves willing to be swept up in that American uh, delusion about remaking Iraq, uh, we were prepared to accept the evidence that uh, came from the United States uh, and other sources about Saddam's alleged uh, weapons of mass destruction program. But what we uh, failed to identify was that the real motivation behind the American approach was this, as I said, illusionary notion that Iraq and the wider Arab world could somehow be remade, uh, starting with the removal by an external power uh, of an Arab government. And in the Australian context, there should have been an opportunity provided to officials to counsel caution on that larger question, even if the intelligence information coming to us was the best that the government uh, uh, could have hoped to uh, receive. Given but even that was dubious, wasn't it? Well, the flood inquiry, I think, I found that mm. Uh, they worked with the information that they had mm. uh, and was not unduly critical of mm. uh, the advice that went to government so far as the WMD question was concerned. The Chilcot was, but, wasn't but it? The, the, British, the, on the British side, the Chilcot inquiry was fairly critical of it. Was, if I it was. It was. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, when Flood, Philip mm. Flood looked at the Australian uh, context, uh, he, he basically said, well, you know, they did with what they had, uh, what they needed to do. Mm, mm, uh, mm, mm. But at no point did officials have the opportunity to engage with ministers on the larger and more important question of, will this work? It's mm, crazy. Yeah. Well, I am told I, I was not involved in the decision process. I was mm. outside the department at the time. Yeah, the time, yeah. I was uh, going to get but, to that, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was quite reliably informed that the decision, irrespective of what uh, John Howard might have agreed uh, possibly earlier uh, with, with Bush, what assurances he might have given privately to Bush, mm. when ministers were first asked to 
take a stance on the whole question of Australia's military engagement, no officials were present. Mm. And when a, a minister was asked whether why that was the case, his response was, if we'd needed an official, we would have asked for one. It's In other big, words, yeah. the government had set its mind on a particular approach uh, and it was not looking for advice about the feasibility, the practicality, indeed the, the strategic rationale uh, for uh, that decision. And that, I think, uh, was a, a gross uh, uh, betrayal of the public interest on Australia's part. The obvious question is why? Why did the Howard government do that? Yes, I, I wish I could uh, give you a simple answer to that. I mm. think one can go back to all sorts of personality factors, uh, uh, political instinct, uh, a, an absence of understanding of a wider context. But I think you can come up with as many reasons as, uh, as one cares to nominate uh, that might have played a part in all of this. I wasn't, as I say, involved, and I can't tell you exactly what. Mm. Now, I just thought you might have a gut feel, given your uh, deep understanding of the region, but also the uh, political machinations at the time. Well, I'm much better on the region than I am on Australian <laughs> politics, uh, 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 and I don't know, uh, mm. as I say. Mm. I, mm. I, I do know that in, uh, in those ca occasions when matters of real strategic import have been addressed by governments uh, ranging from Suez through to Iraq. It is the political instincts uh, of ministers that are the primary consideration. Uh, mm. And that's probably as it should be, uh, because ministers will be accountable. Um, are they? Yes. Are they? Uh, an electoral cycle makes governments accountable in ways that bureaucrats okay. are not accountable. Uh, yeah, okay. Nice that, that we put forward, uh, maybe criticised uh, at some stage, but in no sense uh, are we held accountable in the public gaze unless there's been some clear uh, mm. wrongdoing on the part of an official. Uh, That's an interesting perspective. Yeah. So, I mean, just on that, I mean, I think John Howard is one of our longest-serving prime ministers. Mm. What, what price did he pay for Iraq, in your view, well, politically? I, I frankly don't think that there's uh, anything more than, he, than the criticism that he received at the time. Uh, uh, and because I think even recently, even recently, he, he, he doubled down, and, and, I, and, I, and I might misreference this, but I did read it somewhere that even recently he was asked, and he still believes that it was the right decision yes, uh, to yeah. go. And uh, that's that's his privilege. Mm, uh, mm. Um, I don't think that the Australian public is uh, any more engaged in the issue now than mm. it, it was. Uh, uh, 20 years ago and probably rather less. Mm, mm, uh, so yeah, in terms of yeah. paying a price, I don't think the issue really, uh, I don't think it's really a, 
Yeah, is, is, yeah, is, is, is something to be paid for. No, that's right. Yeah, no, and, and I think that's a that's a interesting nuanced point. And I think it's, it's something that I address quite a lot in the podcast. And, and I, I make the claim that our leaders send us to war with relative impunity, uh, which is why I wanted to touch on that point. Um, you know, because I, as much as it is the political cycle and etc., they're being held accountable. Well, the accountability is uh, is certainly not as great. And, and this is where I talk about the use bellum or the, or the reasons we go to war. You know, we hold our soldiers accountable to the way they conduct war, but certainly don't hold our leaders to the same level of accountability uh, as to, you know, drag him over a court, for example, whether this was an illegal war or an illegal invasion, which, you know, even certainly the Chilcot inquiry, inquiry uh, used that language, uh, if yes. I remember correctly. So on that note then, Bob, given what you've just kind of explained about uh, Iraq uh, and Australia's choices, uh should Australia have debated this war in Parliament? And this goes to the broader, broader question that's certainly contemporary in Australia at the moment, uh, uh, whether the Prime Minister and the Cabinet should hold decision power whether Australia goes to war or whether we should, uh, in fact, debate this uh, in Parliament. I think when one looks at the Iraq uh, 2003 uh, war, uh, there is a very strong case uh, that there should have been a parliamentary debate mm. about the consequences of engaging in a what was effectively a military adventure mm. uh, that lacked a clear strategic objective or realistic strategic mm. objective uh, and that was undertaken in almost complete absence of consideration of the wider context uh, of that war and its... Uh, capacity to uh, secure the outcomes uh, that were initially indicated as being mm. a justification for that war. Mm. Mm. Uh, the, the larger question of whether Parliament should always be involved in debating uh, uh, the deployment of Defence Force personnel, I'll leave to others. Mm. Uh, I'm, I, uh, I'm not convinced that uh, it would be a requirement for every peacekeeping operation, uh, uh, although it is always healthy to have a discussion about what objectives are being served and mm. whether they are credible uh, uh, and appropriate against the wider context of Australian deployments. I mean, we, we've had approaching 70 deployments of uh, Australian naval vessels now, uh, to what is essentially a, uh, a, uh, a program in, in uh, the Western Indian Ocean preventing or seeking to uh, reduce the amount of drug smuggling that goes on in the region. Uh, I don't think that's ever been the subject of a parliamentary debate or discussion. Mm. It probably deserves to be because mm. it, is, it is absorbing a substantial proportion of Australia's naval assets. Mm. Uh, so there is a place for... Uh, parliamentary discussion and debate on some of these questions. Uh, whether it needs to take place on every occasion, I'm not entirely against mm. uh, one way or the other. Mm. I guess my only thinking on that would be is that at the very least, it would prevent the type of decisions and then the type of uh, quotes, as you quoted earlier, of a minister saying that if we wanted uh, official advice, we would have asked for it. At least it would prevent that because then at least some members in parliament would want to be informed and would therefore seek the opinions of people like yourself 
that would then, of course, use the public limelight to, of course, show how much they know and how nuanced the understanding of the region is and therefore might elevate, one would hope, our discussion and our understanding of the potential consequences uh, of sending our troops into conflict. I'm, I'm all about elevating discussion and mm. I do think that uh, we need to ensure that uh, parliamentarians, uh, like business people and the Defence Force and, and uh, a whole range of, of public servants who uh, uh, undertake uh, business connected to uh, the Middle East, mm. need to understand better the environment mm. in which uh, they are working. And only good can come from that uh, uh, not only for ourselves, but from the Middle East as well. Mm, of course. But it brings an interesting point about this uh, tension between interest versus values. Uh, and that's something that um, uh, I'd really be keen to hear your view on, given that you had to balance that really <laughs> in a very nuanced way, that you had to, I guess, present uh, or, or, or pursue Australian interests whilst doing it um, you know, uh, uh, by using our values. How much do you think this Iraq war or this uh, uh, decision to go clashed with our values in the pursuit of some supposed interests? Uh, and it's arguable whether they were in our interest anyway. But let's assume that the Howard government thought it was in our interest to go, which is what uh, we're, we're being told, broadly speaking, that both Afghanistan and Iraq uh, were all about the alliance with the US. So how much does that clash with our Australian values that you so worked so hard to, I guess, uphold and promote and project to the region? I have to look at that in several different dimensions. Uh, at a practical uh, level, um, during my time as ambassador, and I was ambassador in Jordan uh, during the, the first Gulf War, our engagement in conflict has not been seen in the region as a significant part of mm. our approach to the region. In fact, uh, Australia has an extraordinarily uh, fortunate absence of mm. historical baggage as far mm. as the region is concerned. Mm. Mm. Uh, yeah. We are yeah. not seen as having political agendas in the region. Uh, we are seen as being a, uh, a reliable uh, partner in trade, uh, we have useful experience in areas that are directly relevant to the region, such as agriculture and mm -hmm. dry land farming. Mm -hmm. um, we are seen as being honest uh, and, and uh, straightforward in our dealings, and, and we are uh, most of the time. So when we committed forces at various times, uh, uh, this did not attract much attention in mm. the region. And for those who were aware of it, in my experience, uh, it tended to be seen as something which uh, was part and parcel of being in alignment with the United States, but as something imposed upon us rather than something for which we were particularly anxious uh, mm. to to do. Mm. And, uh, yeah... yeah I, it was what somewhat, do you mean imposed on us? That's a really yeah. interesting word to use. Well, the Jordanians uh, used to say, uh, <laughs> yeah. we, un we understand. Uh, yeah, you write, yeah, you write this in the book. In, uh, in that, that sort yeah. of situation yeah. in dealing with the United States. Uh, um, they, I think, uh, were being a little bit 
disingenuous in their interpretation of what we were doing. But uh, nevertheless, from their point of view, if you are uh, close to the United States in so many ways, uh, then there will be obligations upon you which to which you have to respond. And mm. uh, uh, it's not something that uh, would attach a sense of particular antipathy or, or anger uh, from their side. Um, uh, it was... Uh, it, and it is that sort of uh, perception of Australia as being uh, outside the, mm. the cauldron of the region, if you like, that does mm. stand to our advantage. We have mm. built up connections to the region uh, in uh, intelligence sharing and security and, uh, and some military connections, which have been quite useful. For Australia uh, over the last 20 years. Uh, force protection requirements and so on have led us into uh, areas of, of cooperation uh, which have uh, served Australia's interests. But mm. uh, it's still seen as adjunct to our, our principal purpose in the region. Uh, mm, on, the, on the larger question of how does one reconcile between uh, our values and uh, and that military engagement. Um, quite frankly, it's it's not something that uh, has uh, been a major problem uh, for us, because, as I say, firstly, our role uh, was 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 minor compared to others. Where we have deployed, it has been to countries uh, that, uh, in the case of uh, facilitation. Uh, roles in the Emirates and, and Qatar and Kuwait and so on. Uh, it's been regarded in positive terms uh, by those those countries. Uh, in the case of Iraq, uh, uh, we have had such a low profile, uh, mm. serving in an area which was uh, less exposed to to conflict than, than many other parts of Iraq. Mm, 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 mm. Uh, that the uh, question of whether we were there for the right reasons, uh, uh, whether we were there with a full understanding of, of of the complexity of Iraqi society and the damage that was being done to Iraq uh, as a result of what happened in 2003 onwards uh, hasn't really impacted upon. If you'd like to hear the rest of this episode and gain access to all of the episodes of The Voices of War, simply become a subscriber using the link in the show notes. As you know, I will not feature any ads on the show, which is made possible solely through the support of our subscribers. If you find value in the content, you can become one now.